Well, good morning, Prodigal Church. How wonderful it is, how pleasant for God's people to live together in harmony. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Prodigal. If you're wondering why I'm up here and not across the way with our students, like I usually am at 930, our lead pastor, John, today is getting a rare, and I think we would all agree, a well-deserved Sunday off to be home together with his family. So I'm uh, truly grateful to have this chance to be here and talk to you th uh, this week for the third week of our B series. So here's the question I'd like to throw out to start a, sort of uh, get us kicked off this morning. It's a big one. Okay. In our modern world, which we know is both wonderfully diverse and yet increasingly polarized, what can we trust to really bring us and bind us together? How can we be together in our world as it is today? And because I know that that's a big question, I was thinking maybe we could start small. About 11 pounds, four ounces small. Uh, this is my son, little Rohan Javier, two months old. And uh, this is sort of every new parent's dream to sort of you have your kid up here uh, to show him off on the big screen. And uh, in fact, I have to just try and, and uh, not make this a Rohan slideshow this morning. But as a dad of a new infant, if you were to ask me, Brad, uh, what are your mornings like? You'd find out that it's mostly just a lot of that. A lot of me being there with my son because that's all he really wants from me. He has this special connection with his mom, right? But I'm a new dad. What can I really do? All he wants from me is to be held, to be close. And sure, you know, there's these highlight moments where we put him in an adorable little hat and he looks like a bear and that's great, you know? Or he'll grab onto my, my finger with his little wriggling fist and that's awesome, right? That'll make my morning. But mostly it's just a lot of diapers and a lot of time together. And suddenly I turn around and that will have been my morning. But what I'm learning is this, that's not nothing. Time together is not nothing. In many ways, time together is everything. In the long run, uh, time together turns out to be the currency of our relationships. So time together uh, with your significant other is probably more important than what he or she did or didn't get you on Thursday for Valentine's Day. Time together means something to us. And I can see the desire to be together in my son's little gray infant eyes. And that desire lasts. For adults, uh, we, we best see this desire as we get older in our remarkable tendency to gather together and share an event. What I'm talking about is this, okay? It's like when you go to see a movie opening night, okay? You could have waited to see it for much cheaper the next Tuesday. You could have seen it at matinee and had the whole theater to yourself, but there's something special about being there opening night with all of that energy, participating in the real-life reactions to this film as it's shown. There's an energy to that. Or it's like going to a great show, uh, like not like the one that's going to be behind me, but you go to a great show and uh, suddenly a great performer can turn a crowd of people into a choir. And you're all singing aloud these songs that you know by heart. And there's something powerful about that experience. And what sports fan doesn't know the almost religious experience of going to see your team play on its own home field? 
right? We see this here at our own Bulldog Stadium. I don't know if you've ever taken a kid there for the first time, and they're waiting for the wave to come around, the red wave, and then the look on their face the first time, and they see it, and it makes it all the way around, and they get all excited. There's a power to being together. There's something about being together that moves us. We crave this. And what's interesting is this. In our digital age, which is dominated by unlimited texting of Facebook and FaceTime, our desire to be together in real time and space is not going away. If anything, there are indications that it's ramping up. Consider what, for this morning, I'm going to call the con phenomenon, okay, the con phenomenon. Over a million conferences and conventions will be held in the U.S. this year. And I'm not talking about that boring convention that you have to go to because your boss makes you for work. No, I'm thinking more like Comic-Con, okay? 150,000 people will descend on San Diego this summer, as they always do, dressed up in their homemade costumes that they started making after going last year. They'll pay exorbitant hotel prices, all to be together around what? Around the characters and the stories and the artwork of comics. And while Comic-Con is big, there's a conference for everyone. If you are a fanatic of Old Honest Abe, there are four score and 20 guys who you can get together with and celebrate that. When we get excited about something, we want to gather with others so that we can share in that. But I was thinking about another sort of convention uh, this week as I was going around Fresno yesterday and I started noticing some people out on certain street corners. And I was thinking, you know, it's barely 2019. We're barely starting to write that on the corners of our papers. And yet, uh, Election season seems to already be ramping up for 2020, right? You can't uh, turn on a single screen without finding out someone else is running. And soon enough, all of these different candidates from all the different parties will look into the cameras and read their teleprompted statements in front of all of their rallies and their supporters and tell us why they are the one who is going to bring us together. It happens every year. But here's the thing. We look at the world around us and we feel this sort of keen sense that maybe we aren't together after all. We still continue to read stories of heartbreaks and schools that are on lockdown and borders and we suddenly realize our ways of gathering don't seem to really be holding up very well. You can go and you can share an experience with other people and it's this great high to be lost in the anonymity of that crowd. But when the experience is over, you go home and are you really any more connected with those people that you just sat next to? Or some of us join groups and we find out what's actually holding this group that I just joined together is their exclusion of this other group over there. And what's the end game to that sort of gathering principle? Aren't we just going to become more splintered? Here's the thing. This is a big point for us here at Prodigal Church. Rallying together for what you're against might bring it about an immediate sense of purpose. You're almost sure to get a crowd to show up. But you cannot build your life on what you're against. You have to build your life on what you're for. Prodigal Church, uh, this is one of our, our founding motives. Prodigal Church is not built on what we're against. We're against a lot of things. Religiosity, hypocrisy, uh, judgmentalism. But we're not built on that. We're built on our center, and that's what we believe can keep us together. We're built on Jesus. So here's the thing. Into our divided world of tribalism and violence, God sent his son, Jesus. 
And here are the humble origins of the movement by which the kingdom of heaven broke out here on earth. Look with me at Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. What a stark contrast to our age in which even a marginal celebrity has millions of followers. Listen to this. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to them those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, just 12, that they might be with him. What a different gathering principle that Jesus has. Calling together 12 real-life complicated guys to be together and live together in intimate community. The beginning of our Jesus movement. And to get at the absurdity of this arrangement and why it was never boring, let me just illustrate real quickly just two of these guys and how they have nothing in common, okay? So uh, you have Matthew and you have Simon, all right? Matthew, on the one hand, was a tax collector. He was a very wealthy guy, and he made his money working for the Roman occupation. And sitting right next to him in the Jesus circle was Simon. And Simon was a religious radical who was working for the revolutionary overthrow of the Romans that Matthew had his bills paid for. Can you imagine the conversations that must have happened between these two men on the dusty roads behind Jesus? In our contemporary terms, it would be something like this. And I don't think this is much of an exaggeration. This would be like Jesus showing up to a political protest today. Can you imagine it? There's groups on both sides of a street that's being barricaded by police, and there are people that are chanting their slogans, and everybody else has got their signs, and Jesus walks into the middle of this hostile arena, and he calls by name one person from one side, and one representative from the other, and he walks them off shoulder by shoulder into a shared future. That's what Jesus' call is all about. It's, it's very easy as in an individualistic society like ours to hear Jesus' call is it's, it's just about me and Jesus. It's just about me and Jesus. We imagine Jesus walking around saying, you, sir, in the second row, you need to get your life together. And you up there, you really need to pull yourself together. But in fact, that was much less what Jesus was about. His call was far more often, hey, you, you all, come and be together. Come and take your places at the table. Come be part of the project that God is doing in the world. And so, struggling and failing, stopping and starting, followers of Jesus have been trying to follow Jesus' model ever since. How does that work out? Well, we came up with this thing called small groups. I can still remember the day I found out about small groups. I was living with my parents and my five younger siblings just a couple blocks from here. And I come home, and as soon as I walk in the door, my mother's prepared an announcement for me. Bradley, uh, your father and I are going to be hosting a small group this next Thursday. And my immediate response as a cheeky adolescent is, I'm like, Mom, you had six of us. You're always hosting a small group. <laughs> but she says, no, no, wise guy. There, it, don't you understand? It's, there's church people, and there's a book or something. And I'm like, hey, if you guys found someone who can watch the kids, you know, congrats to you guys. <laughs> Exactly. I've been volunteered to be the babysitter for the day. And you eldest children out there know what I'm talking about. It's that form of babysitting that somehow like minimum wage laws never seem to really apply to this, right? And so sure enough, you know, I, I protest, right? All of my adolescent hormonal fervor directed against my parents. But Thursday rolls around. There's a horde of strangers in my living room talking about the purpose-driven life. Meanwhile, my siblings are, and I are crammed into the back room around a board of Candyland, and I'm doubting the future viability of my social life. 
And at that time, I remember both groups bombed. I asked my mom about it this week. I said, hey, how'd that group ever turn out? And she couldn't even remember it. It was not a good group. And at that time, I remember as a teenager, I took one of those wonderful teenage vows where I said, when I get older, I will never get roped in one of these stupid small groups. And now a lifetime later, I'm a small group pastor and I'm leading two groups next month. So, here's the thing though that I did learn about that that I want to pass on to you guys. Not every small group is ideal. Being truly together with real people is messy, it's inconvenient, and the benefits of that gathering may not be immediate or obvious. I would still stand by all three of those statements. I'm like, yep, that's just part of following Jesus, being part of a group. But here's the thing, take heart. Not even Jesus' own small group was ideal, okay? Uh, see, Matthew, Simon, and the rest of Jesus' motley band were constantly embarrassing Jesus out in public. They were fighting among themselves. They did so many weird things. Go back and read the stories. They had like this internal ranking system as to who they thought Jesus loved best, right? Even though Jesus had no idea what was going on. You have guys showing up uh, with their moms asking Jesus for favors. There's Peter, who's always talking over everyone, Jesus included. And in the back of the group, sort of lurking around, pocketing money out of the group's travel fund, is this guy named Judas, who ends up selling out Jesus in the end. Ask Jesus, small groups are anything but simple or easy. And yet, amidst our diversity, Jesus seems to see something significant about gathering to do life together. And here's the thing, he was on to something. Something sociologists are catching up to today. Okay, a few years ago, a researcher set out to ask a very, very popular question um, empirically. They said, what is it that truly makes people happy? Right? A lot of us want to know this, right? So they go out uh, and they, they hypothesize. What truly makes people happy? They say, it's probably indicators like beauty, like wealth, like status. These are going to determine what makes people happy. But the surveys go out, the research comes back, their assumptions were off base. They found we really only need three things to truly be happy. Here's what they are. This is called the self-determination theory of motivation, if you want to look it up. Three things. One, they need to feel connected to others. Two, people need to feel authentic in their own lives. And three, they need to feel competent at what they do. And when the researchers put their heads together and people said, okay, well then what meets all three of those needs? Is there anything, any thread that runs between them? They came up with a very simple answer. Relationships. Relationships, that was the end of the study, was them saying, relationships. We are relational creatures built for connection. So here's the thing. We are doing small groups here at Prodigal, and we don't want you to miss out on being part of one. But the reverse is also true. We don't want to miss out on having you join us and be part of one. Why? Because we all need relationships. In order to follow Jesus in the fullest possible way, we need one another. This is not an add-on to the gospel. This is part of the core of Jesus' message. But here's a question. How do we stay in relationships? Okay, Hebrews chapter 10. The author of this letter called Hebrews, he's anonymous. It's the letter in the Bible that no one seems to know who wrote it. And after nine long chapters of this author writing out this very beautifully intricate argument on how Jesus is this unique mediator that connects us to the love of God, after nine chapters of doing that, he finally gets practical. 
And his argument goes like this. Okay, therefore, because of all who Jesus is, and since he's done all of this on our behalf, shouldn't we respond? Let's respond. How so? Verse 22, let us draw near to God. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess, to the hope we profess. In verse 24, let us consider how we can spur one another toward love and good deeds. Here it is. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day approaching. Catch that. From the very earliest years of the Jesus movement, it has always been easy to say with our lips, yes, I want encouragement, yes, I want hope, yes, I want to be close to God, and at the same time with our lives be sending the message that actually we're not that interested in living life with other people. Because when we live life on autopilot, when we're not prioritizing, it's easy to sort of veer towards isolation and self-sufficiency. Those become our habits. But this letter encourages us, don't give up on meeting together. I know it's hard. I know it's inconvenient. It'll always be inconvenient. I know you'll have to find a sitter. I know you'll have to drive out of your way, put up with that person who seems to be domineering in the conversation. But don't give up. And the Greek here for give up, it's this deeply relational term. It, the word is ekatolopeo, and it means something like this, forsake or abandon. In other words, the verse is not chiding us, saying, hey, remember to set your alarm. Hey, don't be late. It's not a verse doing that. It's a verse that's, that's appealing to our deepest desires and saying, hey, don't walk out on us. Don't leave us. Don't make that your new norm in relationship. See, here at Prodigal Church, we we often try and distinguish between the voice of religious living on one hand and the voice of rebellious living on the other because we believe that Jesus forms a third way between these two, okay? When it comes to gathering, here's what religious living says. Many of us know these mindsets. Religious living says gathering is an obligation. I need to show up so that I can earn God's love and so that I can impress everyone else with my attendance record, okay? Rebellious living, on the other hand, says, well, we're done with uh, religious living. We know you guys just think it's an obligation, but we found the truth out. Gathering, all that gathering that you guys do, is actually just obsolete. It's outdated. I don't need you to be spiritually fulfilled. I know you don't miss me when I'm not there. I don't get that much out of being there anyways. So gathering is just outdated. It's obsolete. But in response to these two mindsets, Jesus' call of radical love says something very different. Jesus' call says, gathering is an opportunity to act out a new relational reality. Jesus' voice says, I came to bring you together. Come be part of my family in which neither you nor the person sitting next to you is ever unloved or unwelcome in my eyes. Come be part of that. Don't give up on that. A few years ago, two sisters from a very different part of the country, uh, they moved back here to the valley I started going to my youth group at the time I was up in Clovis. And they were telling me from the very beginning, they always said, hey, Brad, you've got to meet our dad. Doesn't he need to meet dad? Oh, yeah, he needs to meet dad. And I was trying to figure out what they were getting at, so I asked them, like, why are you saying that? And uh, the elder sister was pretty diplomatic. She was like, well, like, you guys are kind of into Jesus and the Bible and stuff. But then the younger sister butts in and just, just puts the truth out there. She's like, and you're both huge nerds. And I'm like, awesome, perfect. 
find out what they were talking about. Their dad is a trained theologian, okay? Very well-educated guy. And so uh, he and I set a time. We go to Starbucks. And when I walk in, I'll never forget it. He, he comes up to me. It's this big hug immediately. He hugs me. And it's, I'm telling him, oh, I've heard so much about you. We grab the coffee. We sit down at one of those stool tables. And we launch into conversation. And there's that old adage that says, avoid these three things in polite conversation, right? Money, politics, religion. We blow through each of those three stop signs in about 15 minutes flat. Okay? But as we do, the stark reality begins to set in. He and I are very different people. Very different people. Different cultures. He's older than me, better educated than I am. We've lived in different geographic regions. We have different pains in our backgrounds. And so point by point, we find out we disagree on everything. I mean everything. And after two long hours of he and I both, both trying in good faith to see eye to eye, it feels like there's this chasm that's opened between us across this table. And I remember that what started with this big hug ends in this awkward limp handshake, right? And I, I go back to my car and I'm kind of smiling and then I close the door and I just let it out. I feel like I've been punched in the gut by this experience. And here's the thing is I knew this. I knew that not only did I get off on the wrong foot with this guy, but I've now put my relationship with his daughters and their place in the church in jeopardy by showing my whole hand to this dad who I know is concerned himself now driving away thinking, what sort of kid youth pastor have I been sending my girls to? And so I drive away and I'm just decimating myself to my self-talk. Brad, you can't be that honest. You know that. You know how people are. Why were you doing that? But that night is youth group. I show up. I have to prepare to say something. I don't have the words. I'm sitting there in my youth room. And then suddenly at 6.05, just like usual, in come the two girls laughing. And in the background, I see their dad in the car, and he just gives me this sort of the dad nod and the wave, and he just drives off. Not a word. Not a word of explanation about this conversation that we'd had five hours ago. And I'm struck by what happens, and the younger girl walks up to me and she says, hey Brad, dad says you guys should get coffee next week. And the older girl in the background goes, I told you you guys would get along. And I'm like, what the heck just happened here? I'm dumbstruck. Here's what happened. It's not that this guy was dumb, this professor type wasn't able to see how different we were. But whereas me in the conversation, I was noticing that we were from incompatible tribes, headed in radically different directions. But beneath all of that, he'd heard two agreements. We both love Jesus. And we were both committed to the future of these two girls. And because that, that little that we had in common contained Jesus, it somehow outweighed all that stuff in his equation. This guy and I are still friends to this day. I reached out to him this week. Truly, prodigal church, how wonderful it is, how pleasant when God's people can live together in harmony. So here's the word I want to end with this morning as I invite Noe and the band back up with us. This morning, you and I have been sending a message together. A message that we've been sending without our lead pastor anywhere near us. A message that we've been sending before my voice ever came across this mic, before there was ever an image on the screen, before a chord was played. 
Our gathering this morning is a message. Here's how. To the person who drove by this morning and is wondering why a high school theater is full on a rainy Sunday morning. To the person who drives by and wonders why parents across the valley, Selma, Carruthers, Sanger, were getting up this morning in, for us, what is the worst weather of all time and bringing their little babies here to church. If a person should drive by and ask, what is it that keeps bringing that group at Bullard High School back together week in and week out? What is it that binds them together? What is at the center of that group? For us, there's only one name with which to reply the center that we're built on, Jesus. And so this morning we're going to end uh, focused on Jesus through this practice we call communion. Okay, So we have tables set up here at the front and towards the back. In there you're going to find these little uh, contraptions. They have tabs on them. The first tab you pull back and there's going to be the cracker. Okay, That's your bread. Then you pull back the next one and you've got your juice for the morning. You can take it as you like. You can take it as soon as you get the table. You can take it back to your seats. But here's what I want us to all have in common in mind as we come to the table this morning. It's a reflection from 1700 years ago. There was a bishop in Africa named Augustine. And one day Augustine was at church and, and he sees communion is happening and he's trying to think, what does this mean for us today? And he looks at the bread and he's looking at the bread that Jesus had broke and gave to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. And he's looking at that cup which Jesus had also given to his disciples saying, this is the covenant in my new blood. And he's looking at these things. He's trying to figure out what do they mean for him that day. And suddenly it strikes him. That bread. How many grains from how many bushels of wheat had been gathered together to make this one loaf? And that one cup. How many grapes from how many vines had been crushed together to make this one glass of wine. And then he looks up and he sees all of these people sitting in front of him and he's amazed and he says, how have they come to be here? How many people has God brought together from how many tribes to make one family, one church? Prodigal Church, our call this morning is to be together. Will you stand with me and pray? Lord, thank you for this church, God, for this place where you meet us. We thank you, Lord, that you are truly a center that is worth relying on, God, that your radical love has brought us all together this morning. God, may uh, the things that we are holding against others, God, would we let them go, Lord, as we remember your body and blood shed for us. For the, the wounds that we've caused others, God, we ask for forgiveness. Lord, would you bring us together that we would be together not only on Sundays, but throughout our city, throughout our lives, throughout our work weeks, God, through your one Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Won't you come out into the aisles and you have communion?
white as snow And when before the throne I stand incomplete Jesus died my soul to save And my lips shall still repeat Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow Can you sing that one with me again? Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow Just say he washed it white as snow. 